Today on Lightning Bugs. If I go to talk to, say, Congress about art spending, I'll always get comments from the peanut gallery like, why don't you go talk about something important? Why don't you go talk about something that puts food on the table? And um, because of that attitude, I felt like I would like to spend a year pointing out that, you know, the our ancestors wouldn't have gotten from the middle of the food chain to the top of the food chain without ideas, without creativity. But you two stuck out because after my conversations with both of you, I felt like there was suddenly an imperative in the equation for me. Not just that, oh, it's important that we're creative, but that the survival of people on the planet actually might come down to how we communicate and get on the same page about how to set the course correctly. Hi, if you're enjoying listening to Lightning Bugs, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Hello, fellas. How's it going? (laughs) So uh, uh, let me do all the official stuff first. Uh, You're listening to Lightning Bugs, um, conversations about Creativity with me, Ben Folds. My two guests today are repeat offenders here on the show. Uh, and I'll read their bios for you. And really, neither one of them, uh, uh, the bios don't cover it, but, but we'll, 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 we'll go there anyway. First of all, uh, Dr. Roger Payne. Dr. Roger Payne, I see him down there, but you'll see him otherwhere. Uh, Dr. Roger Payne was born in the USA is best known for discovering that humpback whales sing songs and that the calls of fin and blue whales evolved to be heard across oceans. He's now retired from Ocean Alliance, which he founded and spent 50-plus years in doing research and working for whale conservation. He has led over 100 expeditions to all oceans, studied every species of large whale in the wild, and started the longest continuous study of known individual whales, Southern Rights. It is now in its 53rd year. Together with his students, many now leaders in whale research, he pioneered several of the benign research techniques now used across the world to study the behavior of free-swimming whales. He has published books and papers on his many honors and and his many... Sorry, I'm a musician, so I'm going to just get through this. I might have to sing it to get through. (laughs) Uh, He pioneered several benign research techniques now used across the world to study the behavior of free-swimming whales. He has published books and papers, and his many honors and awards include a MacArthur Fellowship, a UNEP, UNEP, Global 500 Award, a Knighthood in the Netherlands, and Oxford University's Dawkins Prize. That's that's a lot of stuff, and and there's way more than, than this. Now let's move yeah, over to could, God, uh, Jonathan. Ben, couldn't you could you do my biography first? So I don't have to follow <laughs> that act. <laughs> I know. Yeah, this is he was your opening act there, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. And Jonathan says he wrote this. Jonathan does neat stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, actually, no, this is his mom wrote that. Okay. Uh, okay, Jonathan Gothshaw, uh, appraised by Stephen Pinker as our deepest thinker about the powerful role of stories in our lives. 
Jonathan Goshall is a distinguished fellow in the English Department at Washington and Jefferson College. His writing at the intersection of science and art has been covered in depth by the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, Scientific American, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Oprah Magazine, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Science, Nature, and on shows like Radio Lab, Morning Edition, National Geographic, Star Talk with Neil deGrasse. Uh, is it DeGrasse or DeGrasse? DeGrasse? DeGrasse. Sorry. I've only read that. I haven't, I haven't listened to and the Joe Rogan experience. That's Rogan or Rogan? Rogan. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Jonathan is the author or editor of eight books, including The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. I loved that one. Uh, the Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. The Story Paradox, How Our Love of Storytelling Builds so Societies and Tears Them Down. And that's his newest book, and you should... You should get that. It's a, it's an, I think it's an important book. So now that I've, uh, now that I've introduced these two uh, fellas, uh, this is my last, at least for a while, I'm going on hiatus. So this completes one year of my, uh, of my podcast. And I started this thing. Really um, trying to do a, my small part in elevating the value or the perceived value of creativity and ideas. And the reason I thought that was important and interesting to me is because I constantly go to bat for arts education. And I find that in the real world, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the company of grownups, and the, you know, it's like politicians, creativity no matter what they seem to say, by their actions and the way people seem to view creativity is it's art made by silly little people at the margins that wear weird clothes for our amusement. And if I go to talk to, say, Congress about art spending, I'll always get comments from the peanut gallery like, why don't you go talk about something important? Why don't you go talk about something that puts food on the table? And um, because of that attitude, I felt like I would like to spend a year pointing out that, you know, the uh, our ancestors wouldn't have gotten from the middle of the food chain to the top of the food chain without ideas without creativity. And there's no better place to study creativity than in the place where that's all we do is in the arts. Um, so yeah, I talked to a lot of different, um, I talked to scientists, you know, uh, authors, dancers, musicians, politicians about it. And I learned a lot, but you two stuck out because after my conversations with both of you, I felt like there was suddenly an imperative in the equation for me. Not just that, oh, it's important that we're creative, but that the survival of people on the planet actually might come down to how we communicate and get on the same page about how to set the course correctly. And your two angles are you come from different places. 
Jonathan, you, your, your life has been spent, a lot of it, I don't know what you did with the rest of your time, <laughs> but a lot of it has been spent uh, studying stories, narratology, um, what makes a good story and what makes a bad story. And I think that's very important. And your new book is, uh, kids, you should, you should definitely get the story paradox. There's, I don't think there's much more important thing to talk about now than our colliding uh, 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 narratives and how that's destroying us. Uh, Jonathan, we're talking to someone who is really one of the few artists out there who has made something that has actually moved artistically in, in, in our lifetimes, moved the meter. Uh, Roger's album, uh, Songs of the Humpback Whales, really, really, uh, people sprung into action uh, based on that album. There seems to be a way for art to communicate creativity, the arts, to communicate important stuff that we need to. I don't believe we've cracked the code in this era on doing that. I believe artists in general are um, fairly muted. And, there, and there's probably really good reasons for that, which we can get into. But before we get there, I want to talk to Roger about the experience of that album. And don't be too humble. What the album actually probably accomplished? Well, let me just say, you, in introducing this both, you got onto the subject of uh, Jonathan's books. And I must say, whoever's listening, just get the latest one, which is called The Story Paradox. I've read it. I, don't, I won't make a penny whether you do or not, but I can tell you that it will make a better world. It's headed that way. I'm a scientist. I've spent my whole life in science, and yet I think I value the arts more than I do. Uh, I think I think put it this way: that what science contributes is enormously important, but what the arts now can take from that is, in fact, the ultimate importance. Because people in science, you know, you you spend your imagination and you. You know, you, you do all kinds of things, which if you speak out incorrectly, that's it. You're over. Whereas in the arts, everything is imagination. And I think that the ability to communicate with the world is vastly better developed in artists than it is the scientists, obviously. And that's why I see art as so insanely important. And I think that Jonathan has expressed that in a way so excellent and me too. That I just wildly recommend it. But I'll start by saying the whale record that I borrowed some sounds from a friend who I had just met in Bermuda and we put out a record of that plus some recordings that I had then later made of humpback whales and it went viral for those times. It still supposedly has been heard more than any other record of wildlife sounds. And I think Somehow it speaks to the human being in ways that are just phenomenally strong. And I don't understand it. A lot of people weep when they hear these sounds mm. for the first time. 
that wasn't the effect it had on me. It just blew my mind, however, in terms of I thought immediately it was apparent, ah, this is how you you do what a friend of mine used to refer to as get the listen. This is how you actually get the attention of the world. Mm-hmm. And so when I put them out, there was lots of pressures. Oh, they should have some explanation overnight. And I said, no, no, no. And there was, there were suggestions of they should be accompanied by musicians. And I said, no, <laughs> please go. The whales a chance to speak. <laughs> but the hardest one of all was to, Ben, you can do it, the musicians part. But in the beginning, I thought, I wanted whales to have the stage and nobody else to interfere. And so there is on one side of the recording, the, the, the original recording, which was so old and so long ago that it was in fact an LP record. And there's one side of 45 minute cut and you just listen to these whales. And when you put headphones on somebody and you set them down comfortably and you play these sounds, the reaction you get is absolutely mm. profound. At first, if it's there's several people and you have headphones on several, they will chatter back and forth for just a moment. Wow, whoa, this kind of comment. And then they calm down. And eventually, after 10 or 15 minutes of listening or more, when they take off their headphones, they don't lift them off the way we normally do. They basically sort of just wipe them off their face. It's as though somebody's coming out of a trance. It's extraordinary to see. It really is. And that's common. Absolutely common. And many people, as I said, weep when they do. And the result, I think, of these sounds and getting them out in a way that enabled the whales to be heard, uh, it, it certainly kick-started the whale, uh, the, the effort to save whales. I'm positive that it, um, it, people sprung into action because of that record. I mean, I think that's, that's observably true if you if you look back on it and uh, think about uh, what what I, th- I think Green Greenpeace. I lost my mind. Greenpeace. You think of Sea Shepherd as well? Yeah, yeah. Greenpeace is certainly it. Greenpeace started as being something that was concerned with trying to put an end to the development and testing of nuclear weapons and switched to whales. And that was such a, and that occurred after they heard whale song. Right, right. And that exactly. was such an, an extraordinary shift that uh, that all kinds of other organizations started out and did wonderful things. And I, although I worked flat out for two years doing, meeting all these people and giving talks and this kind of thing, it was in the end, uh, it was just dead obvious that what what people needed to hear was the whales and have me set up that helped. What Roger, uh, when people are responding so so emotionally to whale song, what do you think is happening there? Are they, are they feeling a sense of kinship with the animal? I think that you know the the acoustic part of the brain, which is being, I think, somehow uh, affected by these whales. It's, you know, it's why I think it's a wonderful example of, you know, if I said to you, Jonathan, tell me, you know, what's so good about music? Why do you like music? Why do you care about music? And nobody can, I bet not even Ben can answer that in a no. full way. But yeah. It does, it, in, in other words, our love, our deep 
deep love and, and affection and the impact that music has, has, I think is so old. I actually believe mm-hmm. it's older than humanity and that mm-hmm. there have been all kinds of singing creatures probably before and that right. basically the reason you can't give voice to why it is so important in any way that really explains it even to yourself is simply because it's so incredibly ancient. And I think these whales are hitting that, and I suspect because they've been around for 60 million years making these sounds, you can tell that by looking at their ears from old fossils and so on, that in fact they would be, that they are probably vastly more experienced and skilled than we are because we are so deeply visual and, and also use other senses so actively, but they do too. Everybody uses, I mean, every species uses every sense it can possibly use and uses it right to the limits of its ability. Uh, I mean, we hear, you know, sounds that, that are, if they were any fainter, you would hear the random banging together of the molecules of whatever is in, near the microphone. And if you hear, if you saw light more sensitively, you would see less than a photon, which is impossible. And you, you smell and some uh, animals smell things with such sensitivity they can detect a single mo- molecule of the fragrance. So all sense organs drive right to the end of the, their, their sensitivity to be able to do it. Well, I think it's the same kind of thing, but in a world in which there's no voicing of what the hell's going on, no real mm. understanding, it's all subconscious and and i think the whales have just nailed that market that's my feeling <laughs> well it is bizarre uh, i mean that the first time uh, uh, i've heard whales emma and i were in hawaii and we just went underwater and you could hear them Absolutely. just right there at the beach mm-hmm. and i have to yeah. say two things about it that struck me as a musician one was how familiar they sounded and it wasn't from because 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 I had the album, <laughs> although that's some of it. There was a real familiarity that is really hard to explain when you hear them. It's a little bit like a barnyard or something. You're like you don't hear it as an exotic creature. You hear it as as us, oh, my brother out there. It really feels related, and it also there is something. I, I don't know if it's imagined, but there is something that seems wise and on purpose about it too. And, you know, when you point out that whales' songs evolve, are passed around, and that they follow something akin to a sonata form, that's nuts. Like, that's really beyond anything uh, that I could understand with my tiny mind. Well, exactly, because whales have been completely separated from us in a way that would be the only thing you ever can hear is if you are in a place where they come very close to shore, and those are pretty rare places, and people didn't, I think, spend an awful lot of time in the water in many, in many such places. So if if you if you are if you're looking for a way to uh, compare what they what whales and we have been doing for all these years, you find that you know whales have been can't remember what the number is, but they've been about about four, about 200 times longer in the wild than we are believed to have been our species, Homo sapiens. And so they're very familiar with what's going on there in the, in the water. And they, and they really get that feeling that they're just, they're doing subtle stuff that 
is deeply emotional. Now, Jonathan, I'd take this over to you and how it relates to stories, because, you know, like as a songwriter, I see a compelling vocalist uh, in the uh, in the whales, but then inside there, somehow, what Roger did with that album did amount to a story, and I and I can't really say how. Somehow, it implies a story. Maybe there's a villain involved. Maybe there's there's something that is involved that that people sprung into action. Because what I'd love to come away with is this good story works. It puts people into action. We move. This is a, a story that mutes your your uh, involvement. The kind of story, and you talk about this in, in in a couple of your books about the kind of story that it, it the effect is it makes you stay home. And uh, and so I want to I want to look at why the humpback whales story or what part of that is a story and why that's effective, and why I can't walk out on stage and say, all right, yeah, save the planet, everybody, come on, and not get <laughs> shit thrown at me. Like, like, like there's, yeah. his album worked, my version of that album <laughs> would not work. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, this is all kind of uh, mysterious, of course, um, but, you know, I do think you hear the whale song when I hear the whale song. And I, by the way, I've just started uh, reading uh, Roger's book um, about whales. And um, I just want to say also to repay the compliment, you know, I, I, I admire it greatly and it filled me with admiration. It also filled my bitter little soul uh, with envy. Uh, it's a great book. It's really beautifully, uh, beautifully <laughs> written. So uh, Roger is also narrating the story. You know, he's also helping us uh, contextualize this right. this this uh, song, uh, make sense of it. Um, my first impression is when people, especially people who are completely naive um, to the uh, natural science of whales and whale song, when they first hear this music, they feel a powerful sense of communion with a creature that they might have once thought of as a sort of, you know, dumb fish, mm. you know, just swimming around the ocean. Who cares if you kill them? And suddenly you're dealing with what appears to be, I don't know if we're projecting or not, but what appears to be a creature of art um, that is like us. And that has sort of depths and mm -hmm. um, uh, subtleties uh, that, that it pays to understand. It just doesn't feel right to kill them anymore. And then you do have a whole architecture of storytelling breaking out. You have, I don't know, the, the victims might be the whales. The heroes might mm -hmm. be the people like Roger uh, uh, fighting to save them. And mm -hmm. the villains might be all of the people like you know us who the are whalers. polluting the oceans with uh, trash and noise and uh, also the whalers and, and, and that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how this is, what we can learn from the success of that album when people go out and scream at the sky and microphones make albums, T-shirts, movies, and everything they can about climate change. And it just, it's, it's not a hit. Why is well, that not a hit? What, what, I think, what I think is great about the Whale Song uh, album and what I hope that other activists might learn from it is there is no explicit haranguing 
going on. Mm-hmm. I, I love that I you didn't so have any sort of forward to it, any sort yeah. of notes to it, any sort of explanation for it. And you also didn't do any storytelling. Uh, you did it in the book, but but not on the um, album. And this is great for one specific reason that I see. There's no villainization. Mm. He's not villainizing anyone. And just as an, as an example of a, a story that is trying to save the world, but doing a worse job of it. Um, an example of this to me is the Netflix film that just came out a couple months ago, probably called Don't Look Up. And it's about uh, the catastrophe of global climate change. And it's sort of a farcical story. It's very funny. It's completely in line with my politics. So I, so I liked it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was very funny. Mm-hmm. But it neuters itself as messaging and as political right. messaging and right. as activism because it couldn't resist the temptation to make the fools, the villains, the vampires of the story red hat wearing Republicans and basically Trump types. And as soon as you do that, the people that you most want to convince that global warming is a real problem are completely turned off. They, they, they see the agenda. Right. They see that they're being trans, uh, transformed into the despised villain of the story. And they say, oh, this is just more uh, liberal propaganda. Um, so one thing, you know, one thing uh, to avoid is villainizing mm. exactly the people you hope to persuade. Right. That's the, the, the word sway comes early in your new book. And that's not sway at all. You're not swaying anyone with that. You're, you're basically getting the clicks that you know that you'll get because you have that finite number in front of you. You're like, here's the number of people who are going to agree with this. And that's my base. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and the base works for getting support, but that doesn't work for getting some kind of consensus and working together towards something. So I, I, I think that's a really important part about the agenda because art shouldn't really, you shouldn't overtly see the agenda. That's for an essay or a speech yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, that uh, art, art shouldn't be doing that. I heard one time a a very distinguished man whose name, I'm sorry, I just cannot remember at the moment, but he was the ambassador from uh, some of the South Pacific Islands, Solomon Islands. And he spoke at a meeting, and this is in relation to what Jonathan is saying. Um, he, it was, it was pointing out what the problems that the whaling industry had created and what needed to happen should happen. It was so gently done, so un, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was nothing, there were no hidden messages, no nasty little digs or any mm. characterizations. It was all as though he was talking to close friends. And it was the single most effective talk I've ever heard anybody give on the subject of whaling. It was simply phenomenal. And mm. uh, it didn't last very long. But it was just amazing. Yeah, I I, I always argue that um, if kids aren't going to be artists, and most aren't, that one of the things you learn to do through the arts when you're a kid is to compose something to speak, you, you know, uh, public speaking 
or just framing things in general, it's really, it's, it's important. There's an artful and an artistic way. And it sounds like this cat did that. I mean, first of all, it's short. So he went with all killer, no filler, <laughs> which is a good idea. <laughs> Didn't bore us, got to the chorus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is then, uh, can you think of any, either of you think of any specific instances in modern times of, um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be popular art, but some sort of art that is or has been moving the proverbial needle in some kind of way or seems to be on the right track to do it. Like, because I, in music, I really can't. It all kind of goes back to your Netflix example of don't look up. That's what I see. And it's not compelling to me either when it's done that way. And 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 art should be honest. So I don't argue with someone who, if they're pissed off, says, "You're frying the planet, man." Da, 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 da. I mean, that's their the way they feel about it. But it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna move anyone. I do have I do have an example, and I I, I worry that I might I might have already used this the last time we talked. But I'll, okay. I'll give it anyway because it's the yeah. best one I can think of. There's been massive change over the last 15 or 20 years and how uh, gay people are treated in America mm. and much of the rest of the Western world. It's been this kind of phenomenal sea change that has been utterly flabbergasting to social scientists. Going from a place, you know, where, where they're really, gay people really stigmatized. Um, it was kind of okay to make jokes about them and to slur them. Uh, people had, it was a very strong consensus that they shouldn't get married. They shouldn't uh, be able to raise uh, children um, and so on and so forth. And over 15, 20 years, it just completely flip-flopped. And uh, to the point where attitudes of tolerance towards homosexuality are very impressive now. Um, and when they look for explanations of this, one of the places that they go and they give a lot of the credit to is simple television shows. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been in fact called the will and grace effect. And so, and this was the least heavy handed sort of activism you could imagine. There was not, not much in the way of speeches on Will and Grace. They didn't have, you know, a bunch of uh, Republicans showing up and beating up gay guys in every episode. Um, all they had to right. do was much like much like Roger's whale song yeah. is just show gay show. people living their lives. Yeah, mm -hmm. just show it and show them laughing and show them struggling and show them loving and before you know it, people are saying, hey, you know what, after all, you know, I actually don't find these guys all that icky. I actually don't find this uh, repulsive morally or uh, otherwise. Because right. um, your best friend people, now is on television. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we have this sort of, uh, this, the social scientists call this parasocial interaction. So we form real kind of, so, they're one way, but we feel real social relationships with our, our favorite TV characters, for instance. And um, we transfer the attitudes that we have toward them to the class they represent. So we said, yeah, I like Will. I like, I like Jack. I like these gay guys on this show. And so what's cool about this is like the, the strongest indicator of whether someone is going to have tolerant attitudes towards uh, gay people is whether or not they know one. Do you know right. one? Do you have a close family member, a close friend who's gay? If so, your attitudes of tolerance are, 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 are more likely to be high. The cool thing about this, it doesn't matter 
if the person's real or not. It can right. be a fake gay friend. Yeah. Um, and if you have a fake gay friend, it seems to have the the, the same uh, move, move you in that same direction of tolerance. Yeah. And this is part of a larger scholarship in something called entertainment education. So there's a whole bunch of like TV shows, especially in the, in the developed world, the developing world, the developing world, um, where you know they're, they're trying to work sort of pro-social messaging into stories in a show-don't-tell sort of way, but it's, but it's very effective. And it seems to be much more effective than explicit messaging by saying, you know, like, yeah, like you just said about uh, singing a song about you're frying the planet, go go burn in hell, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think it's hugely important to just see people doing completely normal things, uh, not, mm. you know, not being preached at, but simply being... Uh, right. allowed to participate with is the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, what I'm getting from that as a uh, as someone who, you know, writes is just another another reminder of what any editor will say over and over again to you, which is show us, don't tell us. You know, and, and when it yeah. comes to when it comes to making anything a good song or whatever, it, it, it does really seem like that is super important um, when you're trying to uh, use art to tell a story or, you know, for the greater good. And another thing that occurs to me, and this I've just pulled out of my the recesses of the back of my brain, but I feel like my daughter came home from college one, uh, one summer and told me about a class she took in the early days of the CIA and bringing in authors in order to sort of push various agendas that the CIA was trying to push. And she thought of it as, you know, pretty sinister. I think it was being taught as such, and I understand why that would be. But it is kind of interesting, the idea that it would be coordinated. For instance, if I wanted to write something that was going to make any kind of change, I feel like I would need a team of other songwriters and other authors who are all hitting other small points. You know, all that one TV show has to do is, 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 is have a dignified gay character that's your friend on screen. But then that's it. And then the next song takes that one step further. Because if you try in one song or you try in one piece of art too hard, your agenda steps out in front of the art People don't trust it, and they don't listen to it anymore. Uh, do you know anything about that program, or am I dreaming that up, John? Uh, what program? It's some kind of program with the CIA. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I don't know the program. I'm running a podcast. I'm talking about the CIA. Yeah. I don't know what it was called. Uh, it it well, may have been like Operation Mockingbird or some crap like that. But the uh, idea was that, that various authors that you knew of, and, and Gracie came huh. home and told me like five names that I knew of, were all in this group, and they were just taking a small, a, a small, you know, it could be a humanitarian issue to just humanize, put in their work to try to create an environment and a paradigm that we mm -hmm. live in that moves us towards a certain way of thinking. You can call it brainwashing if you want, but if we're going to tell a story, we can't do it. Just one artist can't step out on stage or or. Or, or make a movie that does almost anything. It needs to be a larger thing, yeah? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know the program, and I actually made a, a note of it so I can look it up uh, later because that's that's very interesting I, to me. I wish I had known about it. I'll ask Gracie um, about it. She's on a boat right now, Roger, getting oh, her sea wow. legs. <laughs> but what well, everything you're saying, I think, makes perfect sense. Um, there's basically, you know, the way I, I I think about it, there's basically two ways that human beings can communicate. They can rationalize by uh, coming up with arguments and backing it up with evidence, mm-hmm. or they can dramatize uh, by telling stories. And the science on this is pretty darn clear that when it comes to just about any outcome that a communicator could conceivably care about, uh, do people pay attention to my story? Do they like it? Uh, do they remember it after it's over? Are they persuaded by it? Um, do they then amplify my story by retelling it and spreading it through their own social networks. It just comes back to any any of those uh, those those measures. Um, emotionally drenched storytelling outcompetes, you know, dull rational rationalization, and does so by a lot. As soon as you become explicit in your messaging, you knock people out of that sort of uh, soft, mm-hmm. receptive mode. Yeah. When we're receiving a story and you knock them into the, the the mode of receiving rational argument, which is a critical and skeptical mental state. Um, so, so you become you become much. Now, again, this is all wonderful as long as we believe that storytellers are good guys. Right. But the storytellers can also be bad guys. Donald yeah. Trump, you know, again, I, I think I'm just kind of a bad guy. And, you know, and he's a hell of a storyteller. Yeah. You know, he's telling, he's a shameless, talented, fabulous, and he tells this incredible story. Um, he creates this incredible alternative universe. Some people call it MAGA world. And it is so invigorating and yeah. so powerful and so attractive to so many people that he maroons about half of our country inside this alternative reality. And so it's kind of, you know, I, I, as you know, I have mixed feelings about storytelling being the solution to our problems. When I wrote The Storytelling mm-hmm. Animal, I, I had this line in it somewhere. It's a very common, almost hackneyed uh, sort of line. But, you know, it's like, you know, I was thinking of stories as, as good things. And I was thinking like, you know, here's the question we should be asking. How can we use stories to change the world for the better? Yeah. Ten years go by. The world changes an awful lot that brings the negative capacity of story into much sharper yeah. relief for me. And I uh, end my introduction of that book by asking a very different question. I say something like, you know, the question we should be asking ourselves today is not the cliched question, how do we save the world through stories? The question we should be asking is, from. how do we save the world from stories? <laughs> because yeah. I think it really is the stories and the collision of these stories all of these, you know, ideological narratives and conspiracy narratives and demagogic narratives and disinformation narratives and uh, propaganda and so on and so forth that are driving the species mad. And I mean that in both senses of the word mad. They're driving us into these fits of intense irrationality. That's one sense. And they're also yeah. uh, revving up our rage and our, our mutual hostility. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 I think the, the the problem when you know if you just think of a debate and it's a political debate, and one side is willing to spin stories, willing to make it up, 
uh, there's obviously a lot of honor in knowing your place and going, I'm a policy wonk. Here are my, you know, here are my reasons and here's my data and here's my my argument. That's, you know, you have to be willing to just create fiction on some level to be able to fight that uh, because no matter how much you might make up, there's nothing more interesting than some, than what just comes out of someone's head, you know? Right. If they're willing to just completely be fictional about it, then that is a really, that's a really tough place to be in. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I go back to, 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 to a moment with uh, Roger on our podcast where I was talking about creativity just for creativity's sake. And I'm like, could you give me a little, a little piece or something? Let's, let's make a thing. And Roger said that there's nothing more important right now than art to tell the story to essentially save uh, human beings from probably not being here in a century or two. And that was really sobering to me because, you know, as an artist and a person, I'm thinking, wow, I got to start getting out there and making some stuff. Roger <laughs> sent me out into the world to tell the story. But I have yeah, to say, right. yeah. it's a very, 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 very difficult uh, a story for uh, a musician. You know, I look out on an audience, which is completely divided. And it, it's touchy. Anything that I touch feels like it's going to trigger an emotional response that the narrative is so hot and is such in a part of the story for everyone that they're just about to blow. They sing three-part harmonies that are beautiful at my uh, uh, concerts. I just let them do this thing. And it's the most together I ever feel with people that I don't agree with. And I think that they would probably agree with that. The moment that I come out with an agenda, they're not going to sing those harmonies. So I, I may try to go out and save the planet, save some whales, even save anybody. But as soon as I start, the agenda part of it, I, I, I pokes out and people stop singing together. I figure if I walk into a concert with people who didn't get along and when I leave, they've sung three-part harmony together that's absolutely gorgeous, that's, that's kind of all I can do. That's my excuse. But I'm still thinking about what you said. That's a hell of a lot. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. It does feel nice, but it also seen, makes I've me. I've seen you do that on video before. That's it's amazing. I have too. Yeah, wonderful. People thing. sing so well. And this is a whole other thing. But like, what I found about people in large numbers is that you can get a large number of people, most of whom don't know, don't have musical training, and their tuning gets better and better the more people there are in the audience. Really? Now that's well. It's one thing crazy. I've noticed about these this sort of group uh, music making um, is I am extremely shy mm -hmm. about any sort of self display. Like if I were to dance or if I were to sing, I would be extremely shy and inhibited about it. But if there's enough people around me who are singing and dancing so that my own expression or whatever is engulfed. Yeah, in the, in the in this larger performance, so I don't stand out in any way. Yeah, then I can participate. That's like I right. could never sing in, in in public except in a situation like the ones that you orchestrate, and it's only because I disappear into right. this super organism of this of this of this large crowd. 
And it's interesting how the organism gets just better, and it could just be because of of what you said. Just could it, it could be just because of inhibitions that that the power of numbers. But there's also something bizarrely correcting ab- about it too. I, I feel as a musician, what I'm hearing is tuning, which is really complicated stuff. There's tuning on the piano, which is even tempered tuning, but that's that's a that's a human made. Uh, 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 distinction. Yeah. Distinction. It's not. It's not real. It's just what we decided. But you hear people tuning thirds, and they start coming up to what's more of probably a mathematically correct third than you have on the piano, because they're in the audience, and that's bizarre to me. We think of storytelling as as being this wonderful way of generating empathy. It's how we connect with people across different cultures and. Uh, races and so forth. You know, we see Will and Grace on the sitcom and we feel empathy for them. We say, that, oh, these people aren't that different from us. And all this is is true. But, but storytelling is also, um, you know, there's this other energy running through stories. And mm. it wouldn't be far wrong to call that energy hate. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of love in stories, but also a lot of hate. We hate yeah. the villain of the story. We hate the mm-hmm. bad guy. Um, there's a phrase um, by a scholar that, that I like named Fritz Breithaupt, and he's he's talking about story-based empathy and also the dark side of it. And the phrase is empathetic sadism, and empathetic sadism is this giddy, unwholesome joy mm. we feel when the bad guy of the story is finally captured or humiliated or even killed by the good guy of the story. And we feel virtuous as we uh, revel in the sufferings of the bad guy. And so, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm looking for uh, from people as they construct their stories, artists construct their stories, just ordinary people as they construct their narratives that get them through the day, is to strive for a sort of more radical form of empathy. We're used to, um, you know, trying to empathize with the suffering of the wretched of the earth. You know, the the poor, the enchained, the enslaved, the emiserated. And mm-hmm. the uh, ethical wisdom of that isn't hard to grasp. It's contained in that yeah. phrase there, but for the grace of God go I. Right. Uh, but when it comes to the bad guys— we have this huge failure of empathetic imagination. When it comes to the bad guys of history, the conquistadors, the slavers, the inquisitors, we won't allow ourselves to acknowledge that that is where we would have gone to, quite obviously, if not for the grace of God. Mm -hmm. The devil isn't the other. The devil is us. It's who we would have been if we were born into, you know, exactly their, their circumstances. And so the thing that is really ineffective, I think, um, in, 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 in storytelling, in terms of messaging. There's two things. Mm-hmm. One is explicit messaging. The other is villainization of the people you're hoping to persuade. <laughs> so if you, can, if you have a song about global warming to sing, sing it. Um, but don't say, uh, fuck the Republicans uh, along, along the way. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, let me make a note of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's profoundly interesting. I've, I've I buy into that very strongly in terms of what I've seen in my long life. That does make a huge difference. I I remember when I first got going on Wales and it it looked like, oh, yes, this is the way to get an interest in Wales. I I mean, get the world interested in Wales. I tried to do the same thing in my imagination with rhinoceros because I think the loss of rhinoceros is just the, the, the 
great tragedy. And I realized, and I think the, the, the success of that would have been, but I ran out of enough energy to be able to do it, to try to in, show them not as these, you know, mighty uh, uh, bus-sized creatures crashing through the wilderness, breaking stuff, but in fact show them, you know, unsure in the morning and sort of looking around somewhat mm. concerned so that you get the idea of a gentler creature. And when I had that idea, I happened to be going to, on a, took, I had a trip that took me to Nepal, and there there were rhinos, and we saw a lot of them. And I discovered, my God, that's exactly the way they look. They are unsure. Maybe that's mm. just getting your mind uh, more used to the concept of, oh, well, whatever we've been doing in the past hasn't been working, so well, let's try this. But I don't yeah. think so. I had the impression of an animal of, of, you know, caution and, mm, I don't know, and I'm not so sure about this type of thing. <laughs> it was, it was yeah, that's, uh, well, you'd like to say that humanizes them, but it's not really, we don't, we don't have the, uh, we don't have the, the patent on, 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 on any, any emotion, do we really? I no. mean, these are shared by animals all over the world. How how many species has has the human race uh, eradicated uh, or 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 caused to go extinct? I I can't remember numbers, and, and if I try to quote one, I'll just embarrass myself and, and annoy everybody else. But it is a it's a shockingly large number. Of course, the number of species. Is, is estimated as high by some people as 10 million. More, more, most people stick closer to something around a million. So there's no general agreement as to actually how many species there are. So, but as I recall, guessing from what I had heard, it was something like about a third of species either are gone or are on their way out before the end of this century. Something like that. It's just shocking. Absolutely. And, and, and science indicates that's that's because of us. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, science is comfortable with that concept as a good place to look first, put it that way. Right. But okay. it's a, it's a, um, you know, <clears throat> there are so many complex causes and there are so many people fighting so hard to, you know, twist the truth as far as they possibly can. And if right. they can see. And the good storytellers. Yeah, they're storytellers. Yeah. And, um, yeah, how yeah. long do you think? Um, how long do you personally think uh, uh, we we have left on this planet? Our our, our race species. Oh, well, I would think. I mean, at the present time, without change, a serious change happening. My feeling is, I wouldn't give us five hundred years. I wouldn't give us two hundred years. Right. Um, and yet, I think. The, 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 obviously, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But what my feeling is that the, the only thing that gives me hope, really, that that is not, you know, a very much more accurate prediction than you normally hear, is simply that once people decide to change, they change so fast you can't right. even keep up with it. And right. the classic example, <laughs> and, and the classic example I remember of that is. When the Berlin Wall came down, started coming mm. down, basically, if you list, list, listened to all the top leaders, the really knowledgeable people, those with backgrounds and so forth, 
their commentary at the time came out to be basically, holy smokes, look at that, the wall's coming down. I mean, who knew? It was mm-hmm. that kind of complete failure to right. have really had faith in any sort of prediction that anything would be happening that fast. And you see it in all sorts of other examples. And so once people decide to change and they recognize the importance of doing it and that there is nothing else that's going to work, I think it will happen so fast that, it, you know, then, hell, I could believe in anything. I would, I would yeah. become much more sure that there is a chance. And the exciting thing to me also is that, it, you know, one person, there are people now with so much wealth that one person could save the world, and I wish they would. And let me give you the example that I know, the most effective method of, of preserving different species that are under terrible threat from some appalling thing that humanity is doing, turns out to be, again and again and again, lots of examples, to take somebody and put them out in the field and they start doing studies of the whales or the pangolins or the rhinoceros or anything else, the hummingbirds, if you will, of some area, and they become expert in it. They make friends and contacts with local peoples who live in that area. They get those who were once poaching involved with being paid to be helping to correct the situation, and pretty soon you think, my God, this species might actually make it. And when you get that kind of approach to it, you realize that this sort of um, approach would mean that suppose you took a billion dollars, and most people have no idea how much a billion dollars is, and you you asked, you know, how many people could you pay $100,000 a year to live out in the, in the uh, boondocks somewhere uh, doing this sort of work on, uh, you know, how many species could you preserve for that? And if you're paying $100,000 for a year, uh, you could preserve 10,000 species at 100,000, and that's $1 billion. And if you think about it a moment, you and I, all of us, all four of us, cannot name 10,000 species. We can't come anywhere close to it. And mm-hmm. so uh, if you looked at the possibility then that one person who has not just $1 billion, but there are a couple of individuals that have over $50 billion, could actually set up something which would have enough funding behind it to do the whole job. And at the same time, they would have to struggle along somehow, you know, living on a mere two or three billion dollars. And yeah, that's that, a big and, ask. And that, <laughs> well, it, but it, 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 I just feel that somebody could do that. And they would become yeah. the most loved human being who's ever lived and perhaps ever will live. To me. And what I get out of that is, as a um, you know, the, as the storytelling side of me, or the side that's interested in stories, is that you know, the planet might not, or planet probably be fine. I mean, it's probably the people on it, you know. But let's say we take the bottom figure of of your your pessimistic uh, uh, projection, and it's two hundred years that people last. I mean, you're talking about like the grandchildren of my kids or something like that, mm. seeing the real quick slide into extinction of human beings. And I'm not sure that people, no one walks around with that kind of perspective. But I left our conversation really spun out about that 
possibility. It, because it's one thing to turn on the television and have a have have someone say something dramatic about it. And it's another thing to have someone that you know, who you know has spent their life on it, say, no, this is actually a possibility. It's a possibility that your great-grandkids might watch the end of, of, of people. But at the same time, <clears throat> the same person is telling me that they know that people can and have often changed so quickly and turned on a dime and progress has been made at a, just a breakneck speed so that both of those things are possible and it's, it's really up to us. Uh, I, you know, I knew my grandfather very well. He lived with us for usually about half the year, year after year after year. And he was born in 1860. That means that he was born 162 years ago. And actually, as a little boy, he was, he was, his mother picked him up so he could see over the edge of a coffin in which there was a dead man. And the dead man was Abraham Lincoln. So that's how quickly you get back. And, 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 and he had a huge effect on my life. He was a musician and loved playing piano and I loved hearing him. And so my feeling is it happens, it's happening so fast yeah. that unless humanity recognizes, I mean, and I ain't dead yet. And, and, uh, unless, you know, in, in, unless you recognize that, it's, we're just kidding ourselves again and again and again. And I think there's so much happier and better way to live by facing it, dealing with it, with everyone else and making it work. Well, everyone likes a challenge. That's the thing. Everyone's out working, trying to achieve something. And, and my argument is always for, for, uh, for investment in the arts is, is arts creates interest and there's nothing more powerful than interest. Someone's interested in something, they'll buy it. They'll spend their time on it. They'll chase it around the earth. And they have, we have to be, we have to be interested in, in that. And, you know, I think the science of narratology anyway and of, Getting the, the 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 story right is is all has got to be hugely important. Like like, and we're novices at that. Either of y'all have anything to add to my final fare, farewell podcast? I, I'm really honored that you both make the time uh, to talk to a musician about these things. I appreciate it. Well, we both respect musicians. We respect you too, Ben. Thank Don't you. Don't forget us. Yes. Um, I, I have nothing to add except that. Uh, thank, for, thank you for having me on. I was, um, I'm very honored, too, uh, to be with you and to be with uh, Roger. Um, this, this has been really cool talking to you uh, two times we've done so. Oh, yeah. And, and that's a great treat for me. My God, that was just thrilling. Yeah. Well, th thanks. Thanks, guys. Hey, keep, keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> Same to you, Ben. All right. Hi, if you're enjoying listening to Lightning Bugs, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot.